0: You are worthy of our whole lives. We confess, Lord, that we have not this week in giving you our entire lives. Our weaknesses have been revealed through testing. You see all things, and we cannot hide from you our great need for your forgiveness. We have excused sin in our lives. Lord, have mercy on us. We have let earthly things replace you on the throne in our hearts. Lord, have mercy on us. Grant us repentance so that we can be whole in our worship of you. We ask that the gospel of your son's holy life, death, and resurrection would have full effect in our lives. And Father, we pray for other churches that are laboring for the sake of your gospel. We pray for Salem Heights Church and their pastor, Justin Green. We pray that you would protect him from the enemy that tries to discourage him. Give him boldness for you. Let the preaching of your word have a rich effect on that congregation as they are convicted of sin, respond in repentance, practice forgiveness, and live lives captured by your glory. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso. Lord, as they face trials from every direction, famine, and attacks from Al-Qaeda, we ask for your help for them. Father, send them the resources they need Use us to send them the resources they need. Put leaders in place there that will care for the people of that country. We pray especially for Marcel as he pastors a gathering of believers and as he trains other pastors. We pray for the people of those churches that they would have courage to face trials faithfully. Give them the comfort that only comes from you. And Lord, we pray for those here in our church who need your comfort. For those who are sick, we ask for quick healing. For those who are burdened with anxiety, we ask that their minds would be captured by your love rather than present difficulties. We pray specifically for jo- Jacoba McGraw's nieces and nephews, nephews, they are in the hospital. Lord, heal them, give, them the medical prof- give the medical professionals wisdom in their care, let their family be a beacon of faith and peace to those around them. We are thankful for the church, the body of Christ, And Lord, we long together for the full, clear, unobscured glory we will see when we are in your heavenly throne room. Lord, use your word today to encourage us of the reality of that future glory. Use it to strengthen us to endure hardship. Help us to be passionate about our worship of you as our King and our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Can I have a seat? And turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Years ago, before my wife and I had kids, my mother-in-law took us, along with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, to Disneyland for a family vacation. It was the first time I had been to Disneyland as an adult, and I was blown away by how well they did everything, including the parades. How many of you have ever been to a Disneyland parade? Anyone? A few of you, good. Every night they put on these parades without a hitch, and between the wonderful smells coming out of the shops on Main Street, uh, that are fake, by the way, uh, to the lights and music, it had me almost completely buying into the Disney magic as advertised. One of the days we were there, we were walking through Main Street and my mother-in-law ran into someone she used to work with who was now married to a Disney employee who ran much of the technology behind the parades. So one evening right before the parade, we were taken on a tour of the nerve center of Main Street. We walked in a room and saw the computers and monitors that controlled most everything that happened in that part of the park. Now, at first I was excited to see behind the veil because I love technology, I wanted to see what was going on there. But when we got there, there was this odd and interesting sense of disappointment. I felt like Dorothy looking behind the curtain of the famous Wizard of Oz, only to be severely let down. I saw behind the magic and realized the pragmatic truth, and it was disappointing. Most everything in our postmodern world is this way, isn't it? When it comes to the spiritual world, we've denied its existence, and killed off its mystery. But then to make up for it, in our own physical world, we have seemingly bought into fantasy more so than ever. Just watch a few Marvel movies, and you'll know what I'm talking about. We strive to escape and be entertained because we think that will distract us from the brokenness and pain that surrounds us. But all of these end up disappointing us because when we finish the movie, or when we beat the video game, or when we take off our cosplay costume, or we put down our phones, We look around to realize we live in the same fallen, sinful, broken world that we always have. Most everyone is grasping for something awe inspiring, something otherworldly, so that they can admit that the brokenness in this world is not all there is. There is something more. And if we peek behind the veil of this truth, what we've been assured by the Word of God and by Jesus Christ is that we will not be disappointed. Because we will see the creator of the universe as he carries out his sovereign plan, and we will be overwhelmed with a desire to worship. And so today, this is our goal, to be overwhelmed with a desire to worship as we see the creator on his throne. Today, we're going to look behind the curtain, the curtain of the physical world, and see a vision of the sovereign creator and his heavenly throne. Now, in chapter one of Revelation, the apostle John had a vision of Christ. It was a reminder that there is more than we can see, than we can touch, that we can feel. But then in chapters two and three of Revelation, Jesus spoke to the church as it exists in the physical plane. And we saw the things which were presently true at the time of John. What we saw was seven churches that were bogged down in the day-to-day fight against false doctrine and internal error and external persecution. So much so that they had, in large part, started to waver and forget what they were fighting for, and why they even existed. I think we sometimes feel that way as well. We get bogged down in the world around us, and life pulls us away from remembering why we exist and what we're fighting for. And so John counseled them to lift their eyes to the more eternal truth. Jesus, as he spoke through the Apostle John, knew that without this motivation and this vision driving them forward, the churches would struggle and they would potentially and most likely lose their witness. What the church would encounter from the first century through now and on into the rest of the time before Christ's return would be difficult, and it's proven so throughout history. And so to help them endure, the church then and the church now needs to know that God is the one that is still at the helm of history, driving all creation to its eventual redemption. There is a plan And he is the one that is behind it. And so from chapter 4, which we will look at today, until the end of the book, we will get a vision of what the church encounters in the world and how we are to respond as we await the final return of Christ and the redemption of all things that we will see in the last few chapters. All of the remaining plan that will be outlined is founded on God the Father's sovereignty here in chapter 4. It's the baseline. And then, as we will look at next week, the redemptive work of God the Son in chapter 5. Chapters 4 and chapter 5 will set the scene for the entire rest of the book. So Jesus will call John here in chapter 4 into another vision to pass on to the church, a vision of the sovereign creator and his heavenly throne. So let's go ahead and read through chapter 4 as we have it here in front of us, and then we're going to unpack it and see what it says to us this morning. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, folks, pause for a second and try Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In tip- typical Old Testament prophet form, John is first introduced into the vision as he hears a sovereign summons to the heavenly court. A sovereign summons to the heavenly court. And we see this right there in verse 1. Now, before we get into the text itself, we must understand that the language being used here and the imagery that's about to be presented, we should be used to. It's purposeful in stating that John is a New Testament prophet tasked with revealing God's timeless truth to God's people. This sounds very much like what you would read in the Old Testament prophets. But if you're a Bible student... You'll pause for a moment when you hear me say this, and you'll ask, wait a minute, why would the New Testament church need another prophet? Wasn't Jesus the prophet to end all prophets? And you would be right to question this because the word tells us quite clearly in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, that God speaks now through Jesus. Look at what it says. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we see here that it says this truth that Jesus really is the last prophet. There is no further message needed from God. And this is one of the reasons that we as a church view the New Testament understanding of prophecy as speaking out what God has already declared in his word, rather than the Old Testament understanding that you might see at a more Pentecostal church of delivering new knowledge from God, okay? But realize that John's job here in Revelation is not providing something new, but instead to help the fledgling church of the first century refocus on the truth of who Christ was and is, and subsequently who they are to be. And who we are to be. They had persecution without and within. They were weak and poor. They had little political or societal pull or power. And so there would be a tendency to give up if they did not understand the truth of what was going on in the divine plan of God. Do any of you ever feel like that? You feel like giving up because you just can't see the forest for the trees of what is going on in eternity? I know I do sometimes. And so John is using a lot of similar imagery and language to previous prophets, not because he is plagiarizing them, but because his job is reminding the church of the truth they already had in their hands. They simply needed to believe it and act upon it rather than living out their life like practical atheists, as many of us do. Now, John's word of summons, therefore, is similar to other prophets. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ezekiel. Look at the book of Ezekiel. Go about midway in your Bible and then go to the right slightly and you'll run into Ezekiel. Let's look at Ezekiel 1. We're going to see similar wording and imagery in Ezekiel chapter 1. Take a look at a few different spots here and grab on to these ideas because, again, they're going to play out more and more in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Ezekiel chapter 1, notice the same idea towards the end of the first verse. It says, The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Very similar to exactly what John says there in Revelation. That's the end of verse 1. And you can look down at, the, at verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. Does this sound familiar to what we just read? Four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit would go. They went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now take a look at verse 26. Now above the expanse of their heads there was the likeness of a throne an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Notice the word likeness. He's speaking in symbols and imagery here. And upward from what had uh, the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. You See all that same imagery there? Again, John is not plagiarizing. He's having an image, a vision, of the same throne room of God. Uh, Turn, if you would, with me just a little bit to the left to the book of Isaiah. Go past Jeremiah, Lamentations and Jeremiah, to Isaiah, and go to Isaiah 6. We're just going to read a couple of verses here. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, notice the wording here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Similar to Ezekiel, Isaiah attempts to capture this heavenly scene, but all he can seem to muster is the vision of a throne and the worship that is pronounced over him. Now, these three earthly men, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John, and there are a couple others in the word, uh, are doing their best in their human language to describe an otherworldly scene in language that we can understand. They're unable to describe God in detail as he is spirit and he cannot be seen or else we would die. So they're providing an image of his glory as best they can through symbols. And so we must do our best to understand the symbolism and what it means. And so John, back in Revelation, is acting as a prophet. Go back there with me, back to Revelation, where you were, Revelation 4. John, back here in Revelation, is acting as a prophet, summoned to the court of the divine king to pass what he sees on to the people of God. Take a look there again at verse 1. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, very similar to Ezekiel. And the first voice which I had heard Speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what not, must take place after this. Now, the words after this speak to the sections of the book and the flow of the visions. Please don't try and take the chronology of the book and place it forward into a futurist perspective as if it's talking about future events that will occur. Okay? This after this is very simple. We will see this in at least five other locations in Revelation as markers of the forward progress of the book, not some advanced timeline. Now in this vision, the same being from chapter 1, Christ the King speaks to him through an open door. This door we see leads into the divine court, the heavenly throne room, and the divine council that no one can enter on their own. Just as the Sanhedrin of Israel was closed off unless someone was invited in, this throne room was off-limits unless called by royalty, as with Isaiah and Ezekiel. And this imagery also plays directly off the last two churches from Revelation chapter 3. In the church in Philadelphia, in eight. Christ is explicit in stating that this church, in whom he was pleased because of their reliance on him, they had access to the throne room of God that no one could take away. They had an open door, it says. And this was in stark contrast to the church that Tyler taught us about last week, the church of Laodicea, who had closed the door on themselves and on Christ to his own household. And in that mini-letter, he was calling for them to open it back up, or he would judge them. And spew them out of his mouth for having distanced themselves from him. And so, John here is taking that imagery and is seen as a faithful messenger to the people of God. And so, Christ opens the door, pulls back the veil, if you will, and summons him into his heavenly court so that he might see the sovereign power and control that sits behind all earthly events. John is to capture this and to take it back to the people of God so that they might see God's plan and participate in whatever they can to carry it out. And next, we see the trumpet sounds. The trumpet sounds and the voice comes calling attention to the sovereign who is taking his throne. Any of you have ever watched a movie that has a king in it? What happens when they enter the court? The trumpet sound, why? Because everyone's focus needs to be drawn to the one that sits on the throne. And this is what we see next as John enters into the royal courtroom scene and we see the enthroned creator king, the enthroned creator king. And since we've had about three or four cell phones go off this morning, would you mind checking your phones and putting them on silent so that we're not interrupted anymore? Thank you very much. Because we want to focus on the enthroned creator king. The core of this chapter is the throne and the one seated upon it. Isn't it interesting that whenever man is given a glimpse of God, what we see first is a throne? Let that sit for a second. Whenever we see God, what we see first is a throne. We see a symbol and sign of sovereign authority, a place where rulings of judgment and of mercy issue forth. And what an encouragement when our senses and our experience tell us that someone else is on the throne of creation, whether that be ourselves or Satan himself or the rich and politically powerful. That's what it feels like, that those people might be on the throne. But what a great reminder that the righteous and merciful God of the universe is the one on the throne. The word throne is used 17 times in these two chapters to discuss Christ's royal throne. Now, we might call this an overemphasis, and yet, if the point is to drive home the fact that God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind, then it makes sense 17 times. It should cause every one of us to ask the question, who sits and reigns on the throne of my life? Now, many can fake a religious attitude when it comes to reading our Bible or praying or going to church, but the question that needs to be asked is, who reigns? When your will goes against God's will, when you desire to think and live and act in a way that is contrary to the will and law of God, if he reigns on the throne of our lives, his way will need to conquer our own. And that is difficult, is it not? Bible reading and prayer and assembly, they will help this, absolutely. But at the core, dear friends, it is a spirit-empowered an active work in our lives and hearts to put down our own authority so that Christ can reign. Friends, reading your Bible, going to church and praying with no passion behind it is not going to change your will. Begging Christ that his spirit would overcome your own rebellious spirit, that will do something. And then calling out to his body, and admitting and confessing those places where we need to be held accountable by his spirit dwelling within us, the church, that will help. In these ways, we will be able to lay down our lives and hearts and put down our own authority so that Christ can reign. Well, John describes God the Father using imagery here, imagery of colors and lights surrounding the throne and the king of the universe And notice with me what is described. Have you guys ever been in a situation where you were so awestruck or excited or maybe even afraid that it was hard for your brain to piece together what you experienced? This happened to me the first time I ever saw Kelly, uh, my wife, right? So awestruck that I just didn't even remember what she looked like after that. I just knew I liked her, right? But with God, it's even better than that. I won't get any points later, trust me. No, just kidding. (laughs) She'll just be embarrassed. Well, throughout scripture, when prophets have visions of God and are in his presence, the same thing happens. They end up talking about what is above the throne or below the feet of the one seated on the throne. Do you ever notice this? A similar imagery is used elsewhere. We saw it in Ezekiel, but here's another example. This is from Exodus uh, when the people of God go and uh, confirm the covenant. The, the covenant is ratified between Israel and God. This is Exodus 24, 9 through 10. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, we see this idea of what's below the feet and what's above the throne, and I think the reason for this is because the one who's speaking it is either face down on the ground, prostrate, hoping not to be destroyed for their sinfulness, or they're staring up at the sky in awe and wonder and praise. Now, it's so interesting in in pastoral counseling, uh, I've noticed this often when people are confessing sin or talking about something they're ashamed of. Have you ever noticed that they can't keep their eyes on your eyes? They have to look down because there's this sense of shame. Well, friends, when we stand before the God of all glory, I think that's going to kick in more so than even when we talk to each other. Our face will be down to the ground in prostrate worship, saying, God, I don't even know how I can be in your presence. And then we will understand, as we will see in chapter 5, the only way is through Jesus Christ. But here, John speaks of this wonder of God, and his face is down, and he comes up with this idea that it looks like carnelian and jasper. Now, as with any of these symbols, volumes have been written on all sorts of explanations and guesses as to their meaning. But here, we're simply to take stock of the fact that God's image and reflection was bright and beautiful and more wondrous than can be described, as that which you would see reflecting off a valuable jewel. John also saw and heard a number of things when taken in concert. They speak together of the perfect and balanced nature of God and his holiness. First, what you have... Here in uh, verses 2 uh, through 3, let's take a look at it again. First, what you have is you have the throne, the one seated on the throne, the jasper and carnelian, and then you see around the throne a rainbow that looks in a, like the appearance of an emerald. Uh, and what we see here is we see the merciful nature of God, spoken of with reference to the rainbow behind him that seems as though it were emerald. This immediately should draw our mind back to anyone who went through any Sunday school class. When you hear of a rainbow, what is it that you think of? You think of the ark and Noah and the promise. This immediately should draw our mind back to the covenant made with Noah where God placed an upturned bow into the sky, symbolizing that he would never bring judgment by flood again. You can think of it this way. If someone aims a bow at you with an arrow in it, he's going to bring war against you. But if he turns it up to the sky away from you, it's a sign of peace, okay? Now, much of this life seems like anything other than mercy is driving things forward. Just watch the news. But this reminds us that God is merciful. It's our own sin uh, that is what is infecting this world, but God himself is merciful. And his mercy will be seen throughout Revelation as he helps his saints fight through the trials that come against them. And he helps us in spite of our own sinful nature. God would be righteous to destroy us for our sin, and yet he is merciful to allow mankind to work its way out towards his second coming. So first we see God's mercy. But second, this is contrasted with the rumblings and peals of thunder and lightning emanating from the throne. Take a look at verse 5 there. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This imagery right off the bat of thunder and lightning is meant to identify the same being on the throne as the one with, uh, with the God of the covenant uh, of, with Israel at Mount Sinai. Now notice the similar language here in Exodus 19.16. It says, uh, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And these phrases regarding lightning and thunder will be repeated throughout Revelation multiple times, usually at the end of judgments that have occurred. And it reminds us that one of the ways in which God is merciful to those that are his is that he will execute divine vengeance upon those that have gone against his will and persecuted his people. The judgment pouring out upon even death and sin and hell itself that has bound us and caused us to sit in a world of brokenness. And so we see God's mercy balanced with God's judgment. Third, we see these seven torches we just talked about, of fire that are the seven spirits of God. Now, we've talked about this imagery and this idea back when we talked about the lampstands, but this number seven speaks of perfection, and the image comes from Zechariah 4.10. Here it says, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. And the eyes of Zechariah are speaking of the fact that God's spirit is all-knowing and all-seeing. God is omniscient. And the torches are similar in that they illuminate that which is in the darkness. Friends, God sees all and knows all and will therefore be the perfect judge of all in holiness and righteousness. And this makes his mercy even more pronounced, does it not? God has seen you in your worst. He has seen me in my worst. And his judgment would be righteous immediately. And yet, he has chosen not to bring that judgment and instead to pour that wrath out upon his son for you and for me. When we understand this mercy, this judgment, this omniscience, it makes the others build up even more. And this all comes together to show his majesty and his glory and that he is worthy of honor and worship. Now, this could have made could have uh, this this next idea could have many different connotations as well. We see the sea of glass, like crystal. Next, the one that seems to rise above the rest of all of the possible suggestions is that it will be seen in sharp contrast to the raging and chaotic seas out of which the beast will come in later chapters, Revelation 13. And you may even remember this from Daniel as well. It says, "I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads." with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. We'll get into and exegete that passage later on. But it's out of these chaotic waters, this chaotic sea of the world and the nations of the world that the false authorities of totalitarian government and false religion take root. But here at the throne what we see is God sitting over these same waters in sovereign power to the point where it is like glass. It's at peace and calm because of his authority. God alone is able to conquer all the false powers that we, God's people, often seem powerless to fight. God is the one that brings peace. And so the one seated on the throne is perfect in mercy, perfect in righteous judgment, perfect in wisdom and omniscience, and perfect in victory over the chaos of the kingdom of darkness. What a beautiful amazing balance in God's holy nature. Now, I wonder, friends, as we look at this, as you look at this, I wonder, are there any of these characteristics that you tend to emphasize more so than the others? Which might you need to balance out in your understanding of God so that you can more accurately image him to the world around you? If you're more of a prophet personality, I don't know, kind of like me, you might emphasize the judgment a bit more. If you're a compassionate heart, you might emphasize the mercy a bit more and forget the judgment. Which one do we need to balance out in order to understand who God is and to rightly image him to the world? He is a God of mercy and judgment and omniscience and peace and victory. Well, no royal court is complete without a royal audience to give adoration to its king. And so next what we see... Is an audience of creation in worship. An audience made up of creation that's in worship to their king. Take a look there at verse four. We skipped over it. Verse four, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then look down to the second half of verse six. We see these elders in the first section. and the second portion, we see a description of these very odd-looking beasts in verses 6b through 8. At first glance, they might seem kind of ugly, but I'm sure they're not in real life. Uh, But let's take a look at them again and see what they are. I'm sure some of you uh, animal fans out there are like, aww, even though they have eyes all over them in front and behind and everything else. But now again, there have been volumes written on what these two groups of beings symbolize. And so this vision is a great example of where we need humility in the interpretation of Revelation. But my job is not to just give you all the possibilities, but to focus in on the ones that seem like they're the uh, most likely in context and through the rest of the word. So let's think through a few things elsewhere in the word and let it provide commentary on this section. First, what we need to recognize uh, is that God is first and foremost creator. That's his first relationship to us. And innate to the creator-creation relationship is that it is the job of the creation to worship the one who made it. It's a pretty basic idea. That's what makes him God. Now, think back to our first reading from Psalm 96 earlier this morning as an example of how Scripture speaks of God as the King of all creation. It says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. There's an idea that all creation is meant to worship God. And secondly, we can add to this the fact that biblical truth speaks that sin is the upending of this creator-creation relationship. Think about Romans 1, for example. It tells us that the sin of mankind is that we usurped his throne and worshipped ourselves, the creation, over the one we were meant to worship and adore, which is God. I'll read it for you here now. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So in other words, everybody knows there is a God because there is a creation. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, sounds like our world, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they'd exchanged the truth about God, that he's the creator, for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, the created order, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now between these two Ideas, we start to get a picture that these sets of beings are acting as the right creation worshiping rightly their creator and so what I believe is being communicated between these two sets these two groups of beings is that the whole of redeemed creation is providing worship and praise to the creator king that is worthy. Chapter 5 will put a bow on this idea when, in chapter 5, it will speak of every created thing in heaven and on earth, under the earth and the sea, and all things in them, giving glory to God and his sacrificed lamb, a picture of Jesus. So first we have the elders, and our question here is, are they human or are they angelic beings? What we do know is that the fullness of redemption has not occurred here. And so as we will see in chapter 5, this is the enthronement of the Lamb along with the Father God. We'll talk a lot next, next week about chapter 5 and that vision from Daniel chapter 7 as the Son of Man comes to the Father to be enthroned. And so the more conservative answer here is that these are most likely angelic beings, what's called a divine council, if you will. And Scripture even gives us warrant for this from Isaiah 24, 23, where it speaks of these beings, you'll notice at the end of the verse, as elders. He sits enthroned, he reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. God speaks of this angelic council that is subservient to him and carries out his authority as being called his elders. Now, at the same time, we have this number 24, which is very particular. And in chapter 21 of Revelation, this number is found again uh, as the names of the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel are placed on the gates of the New Jerusalem, and the names of the 12 apostles, the heads of the New Israel, the church, are placed on the New Jerusalem's foundation stones. And so there's a sizable consensus, myself included, that believes these 24 beings even though they're angelic, are meant to symbolize the fullness to come of the redeemed covenant saints of God before his throne, Old Testament and New Testament, who worship him by giving up their authority to him as king, symbolizing their submission to him. So we have these elders who are symbolizing Old Testament and New Testament saints, worshiping before the throne, and then next we have these four creatures, now, from our reading earlier in Ezekiel, we can see that there are similarities in appearance. These creatures are angelic as well, known as cherubim, similar to the cherubim that were crafted to sit atop the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, they have four faces on each. In Revelation, they each have a single face, but all four are present, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Now, each of these represent the highest of creation in various kingdoms, a man, a man, chief among creation, a lion, chief among wild animals, an ox, chief among domesticated animals, and an eagle, chief among the birds of the air. Now these four creatures who represent all of the animals of the land, along with the redeemed people of God, will one day rejoice in the fullness of redemption that's brought about by Christ's culminated reign. All creation, you see, was submitted to the fall of original sin, and all of creation has been given the chance of redemption by the blood-bought salvation of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul speaks of creation and the hearts of the redeemed groaning in anticipation for full redemption. All of creation is witness and sees with its eyes the glory of God, the rebellious sin of man, and the need for salvation." And so because of this, they never cease in their worship of God to proclaim his perfection and his eternal nature with the same phrase mentioned in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see, dear friends, this is the point of creation. This is your point on this planet. It's to worship your creator. God provided all sorts of great things in creation for us to enjoy, Food and drink and beauty and nature, relationships and family, marriage and sexuality. But friends, all of these things are meant for his worship. They are not used well outside of worship. And it's only in that worship that we use these gifts that have been given to us appropriately and we find our purpose. When we try and withdraw them from the sphere of worship, that's when we go majorly wrong. Original sin crept in when we decided that it would be better for us to decide good and evil, to decide when to use them for worship, and to usurp God's position of authority and elevate ourselves. The creation started to raise itself up onto the throne, above the creator and his will. And so all of creation, all that was made with the express purpose of praising its creator, is now yearning to be redeemed, to come back to that place where we can fulfill our ultimate purpose. And only in the saving work of Jesus Christ could this be made right. Only in taking on the sin of mankind and dying at the hands of mankind could Jesus be the sacrificial lamb, as we will see in chapter 5. That alone would atone for the wickedness of God's creation. See, the greatest substitution of all is the fact that those who should have been worshiping, usurped the throne. And the very one who we were worshiping, he stepped down from the throne and he took our place as sinful humanity and died in our place and took the rightful wrath of God upon himself. This is the good news. And this is what we see happening here. We see that, that worship restored as it's supposed to be, eternal worship of the only being worthy of that worship. John has beautifully beautifully painted the royal court for us to observe what is happening. And we have entered into the ultimate time of worship and adoration here. And if we look closely, we can see that this scene gives us a model for the church's worship. A model for the church's worship. Take a look there at verse 9. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." In his heavenly throne room, God is praised and worshipped with unceasing adoration. Friends, if you think about heaven and you think, oh man, that sounds like a real bummer to worship God for the rest of eternity. you got to rethink things. You probably should check your spirit. It's what you were intended for. The song of creation is that God is perfectly holy, perfectly sovereign, in his eternal reign, no matter what the last vestiges of sin within us or the kingdom of darkness that surrounds us says. Notice the three things that they're giving God. It says that they're giving, in verse 9, glory. This is to speak of him as deserving of praise. How often we, in the perversion of our hearts, fight against him and tell him that he's not worthy of our praise because he hasn't delivered us the worship we deserve. But to praise God, to honor him, is to give him glory and that his character innately deserves worship, that there is never a question of his goodness, never a question of his goodness, no matter the darkness that we face. They also give him honor, and this is to treat him with value and respect as the creator, the sovereign Lord and the authority, to treat him as those things each and every time we interact with him. They also give him thanks, thanksgiving that he would be willing to create us, to sustain us, and to provide for us. Guys, without God, we disappear into a pink mist. He made us, he sustains us, he provided for us, and he has saved us. Now at this song from the cherubim, the elders fall down before the throne, prostrate in humble respect and submission to the eternal God, marked multiple times here by the phrase the one who lives forever and ever. And all of creation, whether the beings that symbolize creation or the elders, find their significance and role only in so much as they see their proper relation to the throne. They find their value only in so much as the throne is at the center of their worship. Friends, this is why so many people are out of sorts with who they are or what their purpose and place is. Our world is full of people that think that if we change our circumstances, our spouse, our gender, our sexuality, that we will suddenly find our value or purpose. But friends, this depends upon our relationship to the throne and in all these ways, we are placing ourselves upon it. Are we on that throne worshiping ourselves or is our creator seated upon it at the center of our worship, at the center of our lives. Now we see this so prominently here as these beings representing God's people throw down their crowns. They throw down the authority and autonomy that had been given them by God, at his feet in submission. And notice they give him almost the same as the cherubim. It says glory and honor and power. Power is added here possibly because they, unlike the four creatures, are given crowns, power that they are called to surrender back to the throne. And so again, we are handed this imagery that makes us ask, is this truly symbolic of me and the way that I live my life? Am I one who takes my autonomous authority and hands it back to the Lord in worship, in submitted, humble worship? In what areas of your life and mine have we held onto authority? Have we said we are the God, we are the King, the one that decides good and evil? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your relationship to the church? Is it in how you use your time? How you use your money? Is it in your entertainment? Is it in your sexuality or how you think about your gender? Where are you holding on to the crown instead of surrendering it to him in humble worship? Now, what good news it is that not only has Christ died in our place and brought forgiveness of sin, but he has also freed us from the bondage of our rebellion and sinful nature. The word says we were dead in sin, which means we had no possibility of worshiping God, and yet Christ through his death and resurrection, ascension and enthronement, gave us the ability to once again worship our creator in the manner that he deserves. Jesus' work breathed new spiritual life into us so that we might stand before the Lord in worship. Now what good news this is, what gospel this is, And I wonder if we need to audit our own understanding of the gospel to see if we truly do view this as good news too. We love the fact that Jesus saved us and forgave us, made us pure, but do we likewise love the fact that we are now freed to give the rest of eternity in worship to God? Is that also good news? So that's for us individually, but let's look at it, lastly, from a communal perspective and ask, how does this scene compare with what is usually thought of as worship in the church? And can we learn anything about what our corporate worship should be as we assemble together as the body of Christ? As we have seen, these elders represent the redeemed people of God before the throne. They are are our placeholders in the eternal and spiritual plane, if you will. And in the same way, we represent them in the earthly plane. Our earlier reading from Hebrews 12 speaks of this. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, the word in Greek is ekklesia, the same word that we also translate church, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so there is this miraculous otherworldly connection that occurs When God's people physically gather together to hear his word, proclaim his gospel, and worship him in praise. The question for each of us is, do we see the gathering of God's people with this weight and importance? Do you see the gathering of God's people with this weight and importance? Look back at the last few weeks and ask yourself that question. You'll be able to find the answer very quickly. We need to. We need to see it with this weight. But then we also see that the focus is upon the one seated upon the throne and not the audience before him. Man, this would change a lot of worship nights, wouldn't it? A church that is worshiping God will have songs sung to him, about him in praise. They will have a sermon that declares his glory and our need to submit to it. They will come to assemble not to see what God has for them that week, but to provide honor and worship due to his holy name for all eternity. He will be the focus. I wonder what would happen, friends, if rather than focusing on what we get out of the assembly of God's people, we would rather start to consider what he gets out of it. I think that would change us. We also see that the audience, while not the focus, has a great part to play the part of humble service and prostration and worship, the part of proclamation of God's glory and worth. And I wonder if we check our hearts during the week in preparation for Sunday, seeing if we have a spirit of humility and surrender, I wonder how powerful our proclamation of the gospel would be when we assemble on the Lord's day. This chapter speaks clearly that we need to adjust our expectations of what constitutes What constitutes spirit-filled worship? It is not centered on me or us. It is not evidenced by really great music. It is not evidenced by whether or not my heartstrings get pulled. It is not about what God will do for us. It is about who God is. And it is evidenced in a heart of selfless service and sacrifice and humble dependence upon our Creator and His Son, our Savior and Lord. It is about a church that through song and sermon, prayer and giving declares loudly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This morning, I pray that we at Mission Fellowship have caught the vision of the sovereign creator in his heavenly throne. And next week, we will see that his worthiness extends to his plan of redemption played out through his son, the spotless lamb of Christ. But in the meantime, I pray that this vision we have beheld this morning changes our hearts to be a people that praise our creator God without end. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.